But sometimes when it gets kind of cold in the early morning and I start to complain, Alfred would look at me kind of funny and say, How'd you like to be back in Chicago right now where it's seven below? <laughs> that always makes me realize how little I really had to complain about. Yes, I guess that's right. Mm. Here comes your husband. Morning, Mr. Happel. Good morning, Mrs. Wyatt. Well, I must be on my way, Mrs. Happel. See you tomorrow. Goodbye. Goodbye, Mrs. Wyatt. Where are you going? Now, don't go starting to go off by nagging at me about work. I'm going out to look for a job as soon as I have some coffee. I, I wasn't going to mention that. I don't see why you get the idea that I'm always nagging you. Well, you are. I can't say much more of it. Is there any coffee on the fire? I think they're sending the pot. We'll have to warm it up. All right. I'll be in just as soon as I finish hanging off these clothes. A nice household when a man has to do his own cooking. Uh, not enough coffee here. Rose! Rose! What do you want? Where do you keep the coffee? There isn't any left in the pot. Oh, well, well, wait a second. I'll open and make it some more. Uh, you don't have to address yourself. Just tell me where to find the coffee and I'll make it myself. I don't mind making it for you, John. So you sit down over there and read the paper and I'll have some fixed in a minute. It's <laughs> funny you being nagged about it. You must want something. John, what makes you so disagreeable? Are you feeling all right? Of course I'm feeling all right. Good as a can to you. Are you nagging me all the time? Oh, you talk nice in front of people, but I know what you're thinking. I can see by the way you look at me that you think I'm a lazy good for nothing. Well, maybe I am. All right, Don. Don't get yourself all worked up over it. Read the paper or something until I finish making the coffee. Never mind the coffee. I don't want it now. I'm going out and see if I can find some work. Anything to get away from you. You've got me worried, John. Sometimes I think you're not sane. I'm not sane. That's the last car. That's the only thing you haven't said before. Yeah, I might have known you'd think of it sooner or later. I am saying. You're the one that's crazy. You're crazy as a woman. John, for heaven's sake, calm down. Your heart won't stand it. My heart won't stand it. I won't stand it. I'm sick and tired of your talk, talk, talk all the time. I won't stand it any longer. Tell you that. I'll think of something, some way to make you keep quiet. John. Tonight, John. Won't tomorrow be time enough? Tomorrow? 
I'm afraid tomorrow will be too late. What's the matter with you, John? What are you thinking about? Nothing that matters. At least, not to you. You're not going out again. I am. And I'll be back in a minute. I just want to get something. Get something? For what? I'll show you in a minute. You know what I mean when I come back. into the night, John Apple goes directly to the small storeroom in the backyard. John goes in the bath with some object hanging on the wall. Finds it, re enters the house. As he opens the bedroom door, his wife's back is toward him. Slowly he raises his arm. A heavy iron bar held firmly in his right hand. Then, sensing his presence, his wife turns, sees him. December the 4th, Alfred Wyatt, the next-door neighbor, notices that the blinds in the Happel house are pulled shut, that the bungalow has an air of desertion. Finding the door unlocked, he enters, discovers blood on the walls of the bedroom, calls the police. Captain William J. Bradley of the Newton Street Police Station sends Detective Frank Prince and E.A. Petrie to investigate the Happel bungalow. The two officers are met the bungalow by Wyatt. It may not be anything at all, but... Well, I thought I ought to notify you. There's an awful lot of blood in there. You did the real thing, Mr. Wyatt. Is this the bungalow? Yes, this is the one. Right in here. I threw this door over here off the, the bedroom. There. On the bed. All over the wall. Holy Jupiter, Frank. Look at that. Yeah, that's pretty sick. Mr. Wyatt, I don't think you've made any mistake in calling the police. This is the case for the homicide squad. You mean you think somebody's been murdered? That's right, Mr. Wyatt. Who lives here? Why, Mr. and Mrs. Happel. They're been there, but comes on. When did you see them last? Well, my wife talked to Mrs. Happel last Saturday. Yes, she said she saw Mr. Happel Saturday, too. Yes, we'd better look around here and see if we can dig up. Right. Hey, if someone's been killed, where's the body? That would be just as well enough. You look around the house after you discovered this? Oh, no, sir. I'll just call you. What's that back in that little chest? Oh, a bunch of old furniture and stuff. The apples use it for the storeroom. There's a couple of trunks out there I noticed, but I, I don't think they're there last week. You better have a look out there. Come on, Ed. Right. You sure those trunks weren't there last week? Oh, positive. I, I noticed them for the first thing when I got here today. Mm. Let's have a look inside of them. Too heavy enough. Must be filled with books. No, Rick. How about the lock? Is it fastened? All three. Yep. Locked tight. Just what I have to fasten. Yeah. Use your screwdriver. That ought to do the trick. Now to lift the lid. Hmm. Bunch of old clothes. Here. Put there on that coat. Lock. You better phone headquarters, Ed. And tell them to send out some more ambulance. By phone of the grizzly discovery, Captain Bradley immediately called Chief Joe Taylor of the Los Angeles Detective Force, who in turn notified Captain Bert Wallace of the homicide detail, and ordered him to send Detectives L.E. Sanderson and R.E. East out to the death bungalow for taking the investigation. This done, Captain Bradley, accompanied by Detectives Collins, Johnson, Brody, and Conway, proceeds to the scene of the crime. Hey, 
This is the place, all right, Colin. All the curiosity seekers have assembled already. Yeah. Oh, Captain Bradley. The trunks are all back. Yes. I brought Peter with me to look for Prince and Oliver and Davis to see some pictures. Let's go back then. Right. All right, two people. Come on. Clear out of the way now. You wouldn't want to see it if you'd let you. Got any leads? Yeah, it looks like an opening just here against her husband. The neighbors tell me he's an eccentric old bird who's always telling people how bad he was treated by her. Had a persecution complex or something. Hmm. Where's he now? Well, nobody knows. The fellow who called you saw him last. That was Saturday. He hasn't been seen around here since. Have you got a description of him? Yeah, I was just going to phone it in when you were there. You better do that now and get it on the state teletype. If he did do it, he's probably out of town by now. I'll go around back and look things over while he's Hello, Ed. What have we got? Plenty. Take a look. Hmm. Respect of the body in order to get it into the trunk, huh? Just that. We've got the instrument that it was done with. The small hand saw he found hanging in the clothes closet. Figures going over it for print. What do you know about this apple fellow? Well, he's got a son living here in Los Angeles. Thought you'd probably want to go over and see him. I'll send two of the boys over to bring him in. I'm going back to the office. As soon as you boys get all you want from here, send the body over to the morgue and check with me. Right. Returning to his office, Captain Bradley settles down to the task of piecing together the little he knows about Happel. Then, towards the upper nine o'clock, Detective Colin and Johnson, accompanied by Happel's son, first walk into the office. Hello, boys. This is Fred Happel, Captain. How do you do, Mr. Happel? Sit down over here. What's the trouble, Captain? When did you answer your stepmother, Happel? My stepmother? You mean Rose? Yes, that's her name. Why, I guess it was the day before Thanksgiving. She came over to tell me that she and Dad were going to move back to their farm in St. James, Missouri. Got a small gas stove at her house and told me that I could have it if I come over and get it. Did you? Well, as a matter of fact, I was too busy. Didn't get around to it till last Saturday. Did you see her then? No. Dad was there and he told me that she was out soliciting for the SERA. He hoped me to load the stove in our car. Did your father seem nervous, upset? More than he has been for the past year. He's been in pretty bad shape, mentally and physically, for some time. Have you any idea where he is now? Why, no, not the slightest. Say, he's in some kind of trouble, isn't he? I'm afraid he is. We'll talk about that later. Now the main thing is, he wants you to tell us everything you can remember about the relationship between your stepmother and your father. How'd they get along? Well, not so well. Dad was always telling us how she mistreated him. Said that she had enough money to support both of them, but... She wouldn't give him any. Mr. Happel, did you have any objections to taking your fingerprints? Why, uh, nearly for comparison. Well, no. No, I wouldn't have any Good. In the meantime, I want you to take a little trip with me. Shouldn't take more than 10 or 15 minutes. All right. Only I wish you'd tell me what this is all about. You'll know shortly. Come on down with me. I'm going to the morgue. Arriving at the city morgue, a few minutes later, Captain Bradley's pilot young Apple down a long line of marble slabs. Finally, standing in front of one covered by a plain white Looking at the now pale young man, Bradley reaches down, lifts the sheet. Oh, my God. That's your stepmother? Yes. That's yours. Oh, my God, how horrible. Oh, my God. 
identification of the mutilated body completes, the law begins the task of building a case against John Happel. When at Barber, they learn... Sure, I'm a Lord John for a long time. Sure, I've been to see him for months. And on December 4th, he's coming to my shop. He's ordered a field in a haircut. He says he's going up back east to buy a farm. And he's a fellow me with a $10 bill. He's a comer from a road big enough to choke a cop. John McKellar in the bank where Rose Happel kept the savings account. Why, yes. Mr. Happel came into the bank and presented a check for $491.30, signed by his wife. It closed out a savings account, but the signature looked genuine enough. I gave him the cash without a question. A close inspection of the check in comparison with others, signed by Rose Happel, establishes it as a forgery. In the little shack where the trunk was found, detectives discovered a heavy iron bar used to murder the victim. Little by little, the facts forged a chain of evidence which points directly at John Happel. Without his whereabouts, no trace could be found. Then, on December 14th, two weeks after the murder, detectives staked out of the death bungalow, take a letter addressed to Happel from the postman, and turn it over to Captain Bradley. It is signed by a person named Meyer and mentioned certain business dealings. The letter is postmarked St. James, Missouri. Acting upon this clue, a wire is sent to the chief of police in St. Louis, requesting him to be on the lookout for Happel and giving him a complete description. And in St. Louis, the patrolman Emil Hopkins, reading the name in the police bulletin, recalls the fact that he knows a William Happel, John Strutter, who lives in Maxwell, just outside of St. Louis. Suspecting that the wanted John Happel would get in touch with his brother, patrolman Emil Hopkins drives to Maxwell and for two days mingles with the inhabitants. Each his ears open for any bit of news of Happel. On the third day, his patience rewarded while he is ordered in the general store. He overhears a couple of farmers state that their old friend John Apple has just taken the bus for Arnold. Hopkins intercepts the bus, arrests Apple, and takes him to headquarters in St. Louis. And there, surrounded by several members of the St. Louis Police Department, John Apple amazes his audience with his calm, dispassionate account of the brutal murder. Anyway, that morning we had a fight and she ran me out of the house with the broom. Kept hitting me on the back with it. Told me to get out and not come back till I had a job. What did you do then? Oh, I went out and thought it over. Then that night I came home and as soon as I saw her, I decided I'd do what I'd said I'd do. So I got a piece of pipe. Where did you get the pipe? Out of the little shed in back where I kept a bunch of stuff. I used to sit out there and think in the daytime. It was the only place where I could get any peace. Anyway, I got the pipe, and when I walked in, she was sitting on the bed, taking off a stopping. So I just reached over and hit her on the head. Then what did you do? Well, I sat down and thought it over and decided I'd better put her somewhere. So I started the trunk I had in the house, and I dragged it in and put her in it. Didn't you feel badly about it? Killing Rose? No. She had it coming to her. If I had it to do over again, I wouldn't do any difference. She had it coming to her. Continuing in detail, the little Jim man makes a complete confession and seems to be actually glad that he's going back to Los Angeles to face trial. Puzzled over his apparent desire to return to the authorities. McCarthy tries to question Happel about it, but receives only the information that he's glad the suspense is over, and that he wants to get back to California where it's warm. 
So on December 22nd, Deputy George Storm of the Wakanda District Attorney's Office arrived in St. Louis. Complete the legal procedure of expedition and starts to get back to Los Angeles with Chapel in custody. Three days later, on Christmas, two women, Mrs. Minna Kramer and Mrs. Elise Reinhardt of St. Louis, drive out to the small farm near St. James, where their brother, Henry Myers, lives in lonely solitude. Each out of bare existence on the wind's up promises. Arriving at the farm shortly before noon, the women sent a few to desertion about the ramshackle White House. Henry should have held the horn when I blew it on the back road there. He usually comes out to meet me. Maybe not well. I never did see how to live out here all night and not get sick. Oh, we'd better go in and see what's the matter. I feel clear inside of me. There's something wrong here. That's funny. I feel the same way. The dog. He's howling about something. Come on, Elise. Tell him. The dog is coming from around the back somewhere. Here's the cat. Follow me. Henry. Henry. Where are you? Nina, the dog is out on the back porch. I'm going to look. I'll go with you. Tell me if you want to see me. Business to him. How about that? I don't know anything about it. 
I killed Rose, but I don't know anything about Henry Myers. Cabot, you want to take that trip all over again? You want to go back in all that cold and face the people you knew in St. James and have them identify you? No. Well, that's exactly what's going to happen if you don't tell us the truth about this. Because we know as well as you do that you killed Henry Myers. We've got letters written by him to your wife talking about the farm. All right, be quiet for a minute and I'll tell you. I can't stand people there with me. I'll tell you. That's more like it. Now, tell us about it. Well, Rose had started beginning to move off the farm or pay some rent on it for a long time. He wouldn't do it. Said the farm wasn't worth anything and then he wouldn't get off it. So when I got back there, I... But I'd go and either get some money from him or drive him off. Did you write home that farm? Yeah. All right, go ahead. Well, I went out to the farm and told him who I was. And he began to tell me all about the trouble he'd had trying to make a living and all that. And I told him I didn't care. And all I wanted was some money or for him to clear out. So what happened? Well, he insisted that he couldn't pay anything and made me mad. I had stopped in a little town and bought a small rifle. I had it wrapped up in a package. So I, we talked. He sat down on the. We talked. He sat down on the. We talked. He sat down on the bed, and I started to put the bed, and I started to put the gun together. What did he do then? Nothing. Oh, he got a little gun, and I said yes. I was going to make him get off the property with it. Didn't he try to stop you from putting the gun together? No. He just smiled at me. Made me even madder. So I finished assembling the rifle and put a cartridge in it. And when he started to look at me, I pulled the trigger and he fell over backwards. There wasn't any noise or flush. He just fell down without saying anything. Tell me, Mr. Happel, just what did you think you were going to gain by shooting this man? Gain? I suppose I figured on gaining anything. Only my wife had told him to get off, and now I was telling him to get off, and he wouldn't do it, and he made me mad. So I got him. On February 11, 1935, John Happel goes to trial before Superior Court Judge Charles W. Prince, pleading not guilty by reason of insanity. But Dr. Edwin Waits and Benjamin Blank after carefully reviewing the case and examining the accused man's mind, declare, I know the man undoubtedly has a twisted sense of precautions and a strange persecution complex. It is the belief of my associate, Dr. Blake, and myself, and Mr. Hutton is not suffering from any form of insanity. And a few days after this damaging piece of testimony, days after this damaging piece of testimony, Deputy District Attorney Starman closes his summary with the word, There can be no doubt about it. This man, John Heffel, planned the murder of his wife carefully, knew exactly what he was going to do, and did it with willful intent to kill. He's a cunning, strange being, guilty beyond all doubt of first-degree murder. And on February 15th, 1935, John Heffel, the jury has found you to be guilty of murder in the first degree. Before this court passes, judgment of you and sentence has you anything to say. She shouldn't have married that man. Son, Apple, 
I sentence you to life in prison in San Quentin Penitentiary. Life in the pen? That's fine, Judge. Now I'll have three square meals a day, and nobody can nag at me. That suits me fine, Judge. Absolutely free of charge. While you're in his station, we hope you will fill up your tank with Rio Grande cropped gasoline and see for yourself why it is specified for more police, fire, and emergency cars than any other brand. If you need oil, your Rio Grande dealer offers you the only 25 cent canned motor oil that's guaranteed to be free from wax and useless petroleum jelly. Sinclair Opaline Motor Oil. For only 25 cents per quart can. This oil is guaranteed to give perfect lubrication at the highest or lowest temperatures where other oils break down. It is a fact that you actually do get greatest value for your money from your Rio Grande dealer. Cracked gasoline and thin clear motor oils have made Rio Grande the fastest growing oil company in the West because they are such outstandingly superior values. Good night for the Rio Grande Oil Company.